Ah, Sunday again, and it feels great. I really needed yesterday to relax after a long week, I have to say. It was a long week. (laughs) It was was a very, very, very long week. Felt like two (laughs) and one. With it all did. that snow. It did. And I guess it's not really over yet because we're still in the throngs of winter. So whatever comes, I'm ready for it. Yep. I'm just so grateful that I did get to relax yesterday. Uh, we had a really busy week aside from it also being tiring because of all the shoveling. Yeah, a, a busy storm week for sure. But uh, that didn't really slow down the news a whole lot. Uh, lost a couple of greats this week as well. And we're really going to focus on that over the course of the next hour. Uh, remember, the careers, the lives of Dennis Parker and Vince Gallant, who both passed away. And uh, it's a tough week, really, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And we will uh, do our very best to remember the lives and careers of those two. Uh, we do have lots to get through this morning, but that really was kind of the focus this week outside of the immediate storm mm-hmm. impact was the lives of those two greats. You got that right. Well, we might as well get yeah. down to business here on the best of your VOCM mornings. If you're listening, sure, grab a cup of coffee. Cup of tea. Maybe you'll have a slice of toast. Biscuits and join us right here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, the local music scene is mourning the loss of a true luminary, Dennis Parker, a revered blues artist and cornerstone in the local music scene who passed away this past weekend. Born and raised in London, England, Parker found his home in Newfoundland back in 1971, where he not only shared his music, but he also helped shape the industry by being a founding member of the province's music association. The outpouring of tributes for Parker has been reflecting the impact that he's had on those who knew him and those who enjoyed his music. I reached out to some of the artists who knew Dennis Parker. First, we're going to hear the reflections of musician Jerry Stamp. Uh, There's there's a lot of ways to remember Dennis Parker. I mean, Dennis was obviously an incredible musician, uh, a blues legend in town. But he also was, you know, the executive director of the uh, Music NL or or MIA, the Music Industry Association. Um, And in that role, he basically helped, you know, the the way that we talk about Newfoundland as being this place for music and musicians and having a very distinct culture of music. Dennis had his hand in, in, you know, kind of making that the norm for a number of years, really uh, bringing our artists to the forefront, getting us getting us off the island and onto mainstream stages uh, on the mainland. So, I mean, you can't really, you can't really put just a a few words together to say how indelible that mark will be on music and culture in Newfoundland for the next, you know, 40, 50 years. Jerry, he also was known for giving sound advice to other musicians. Tell me a little bit about your experience with some of the direction that you received from him. Well, when I was when I was young and, and starting out in, the, in music, I mean, I don't, even if I played any real professional gigs as such, I popped by the MIA, as it was known at the time, Music NL now, and uh, you know, went in expecting to have to make an appointment to talk to this guy, Dennis Parker, who I didn't know much about, and he was in there and just kind of said, "No, come on in, have sit down and have a chat." And we talked for I want to say like an hour and a half, and he gave all kinds of advice. I mean, some of it is stuff that you would expect to be kind of straightforward normal, you know, be professional, be punctual, show up on time, you know, play your gig as to the best of your ability. But he also talked about concepts like, you know, getting learning about uh, the music industry itself, all the ins and outs, how things used to be, how things actually are, you know, always be on top of the, the new trends and kind of be able to spot where to invest your time and where not to. I mean, if you talk to most people today, social media is like the be all end all of trying to get noticed. But I mean, you still have to have good sounding recordings and you still have to be able to get out there and play in a venue and, you know, impress a crowd. So all those things that like, you know, while Dennis was getting older, the industry kept changing, but he never lost step with it. He was always, even if he didn't fully understand it, he'd be like, I don't know what this thing is, but I know that's hot. So let's, let's look at it, you know? And that is musician Jerry Stamp. Musician Wade Pinhorn worked closely with Parker for years. Uh, Dennis was absolutely one of my greatest mentors when I finished music school in the early 80s. I got a call from him to play bass in his band, 
and play blues, and I didn't really know anything about it. And I remember him saying to me at the first rehearsal when he saw how stressed I was, it's an E, it's a piece of cake, matey, don't worry about it. And I played with him for 35 or 40 years, off and on, played bass and piano. And the one thing that Dennis taught me was to be absolutely fearless on stage. I learned that by watching him. He was just phenomenal. He, I posted on Facebook this morning, he hit the stage like a thunderstorm. And he was so authentic and so unapologetically himself on stage. And that's probably the greatest lesson I've ever learned about music and performing is just go on stage fearless. And I owe that to him. And I mean, he was instrumental in terms of the music industry here. I spoke with Jerry Stamp about his involvement in starting the first music association here. Um, Were you colleagues with him to that professional capacity? Yes, I was. Actually, at one point, I was uh, vice president of Music NL. He was the executive director of Music NL for years. And, uh, he, you know, he worked tirelessly to put musicians on the map in the province and take care of us and make sure that all the gigs were secure and that we had funding for records and for touring and all that kind of stuff. So he was instrumental in all of that. Dennis. His sense of humor, absolutely. I remember playing something on one of his tunes one night thinking I was being really clever, playing some Latin piano thing. And at the end of the night, he put his arm around me and said, you know that thing that you did in my song, Choking with the Heat? I said, yeah. I'm all proud of myself. He said, you know, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) And And I never, ever played it again. You know, he was just so straightforward about his music. And I remember him also saying to me, play like I mean it. Because if you don't mean it, how is it supposed to mean anything to the people in the audience? And that really resonated with me. And that is musician Wade Pinhorn. We also heard from singer-songwriter Janet Cull, who looks back on the first time she met Dennis Parker. Dennis was such a huge part of my music career. He became a great friend. I actually met Dennis back in, I think it was about 2001. And uh, him and John Hutton, John Hutton was the president of Music NL at the time. And I had just uh, rented an apartment on Victoria Street, and Dennis was living upstairs. And I remember John saying, Janet, you know, are you working these days? I said, no, I'm looking for a job. He said, well, Music NL is looking for an assistant. Dennis lives upstairs. The next day I had an interview, Dennis hired me right on the spot in the office. And uh, it was right at the beginning of my career. So the knowledge that I gained from working next to this guy for five to six years was unbelievable. Uh, It really would have taken me 20 or 30 years, I truly believe that, as a musician in the industry to learn what I did from him in just five years. And uh, he really nurtured my career. And, you know, sitting in that office with him every day and young musicians coming in and him just giving them advice. And and there was no BS with Dennis either. It wasn't like, oh, you got talent, you're going to be famous. It was, this is what you do. It takes so much hard work, and what matters at the end of the day is that you're proud of what you're creating. And I think that's what I took from him the most, is that I watched him over the years create music that he believed in. He never followed any fads. He was not about, you know, the next big thing. It was really about the art. And I respect that so much because that gets lost a lot in the industry, but it never got lost with Dennis Parker. There's so much. It's hard to put into a little tiny interview. All I can say is that I respected and loved him so much, like I know so many artists did. And he will greatly be missed, but he will never ever be forgotten. And that is singer-songwriter Janet Cull remembering how she first met Dennis Parker. And we leave the last word to Dennis Parker as he spoke with Paul Kinsman on the great Newfoundland songbook. I'm proud of the song so much because it was not only, in my opinion, well-crafted song, but also it was the first song I actually completed in Newfoundland. And so that was, I think that was a special thing. Uh, you know, when I first came over here in November 1971, I brought with me a bunch of... Uh, as you say, prog rock type material that I'd written that I'd played for and jammed with Neil Bishop and Al Smith from Gander in London. So these guys went to England, that's where you met them? Yes, with Lukey's boat and I was at a bit of a loose end. I met the the guys and uh, I jammed with them with this stuff that I'd written, this new stuff that I'd written. They said, why don't you come back to Newfoundland and we'll start a band. 
But, you know, I wrote the first part of that song, the middle part, the bridge, right, right. Uh, where it goes, long ships, hold the helm. That whole segment I'd already written before I came here. Anyway, we were on the road, of course, Trans-Canada. You know, f I was fascinated with the, c with the countryside, of course, and uh, thoroughly enjoying it. And then I started noticing these place names. So we came across uh, Bay Despair. Right, Bay Despair. So I was, because it was French, I was pronouncing it Bay Despoir. And uh, the guys said, no, we don't call it that. We call it Bay Despair. And I said, that is so amazing. I had, mm -hmm. So I wrote it down because it just meant so much to me. I got very excited. You know, so the place names, you know, have always fascinated me, and, and um, as they would any writer. So... Uh, I started putting that together, so sailing up to Bay Despair in a frigate called right. Dundee, and then That's the whole the line there that the, the whole imagery came into into play, right. and so I put it in the olden days, you know, in the old galleon days and stuff. You know? Well, you know, they were f they were sailing around Newfoundland back yeah. in, back in the day. Yeah. Here you go, the original version of Once Around the Harbor by Dennis Parker. Neil Bishop, Elaine Kilpatrick, Teddy McNeil, Claude Keynes, and Brian Murphy, TNT. The Great Newfoundland Songbook on VOCM. He will surely be missed. That is just a portion of audio brought to you by your VOCM's Newfoundland songbook. Paul Kinsman used to host that show, and we were listening to Dennis Parker speaking with him. Ben. In other news, the Canadian Mental Health Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, has officially adopted a four-day work week as they prioritize in mental health and work-life balance. A recent pilot project demonstrated marked improvements in staff well-being, prompting a permanent shift to this new work schedule. Chandra Kavanaugh is the CEO of CMHANL. She joined us on Tuesday morning. What were the key findings from the pilot project that led to this decision? So it was incredibly exciting. We piloted this for about six months, and we found, as you mentioned, not only was there an increase in mental wellness, in well-being, but in productivity as well. So I think you're much more careful about your choices, the projects you take on, when you have more of a limited time, and, and also when you want to protect that limited time. Um, so around my office, there are no hour-long meetings that could be 15 minutes, let me tell you. <laughs> How did the idea of a four-day work week initially come about at CMHANL? So I think that there were a couple of things. One is certainly COVID-19 was an inspiration in terms of looking at how can we be flexible in the workplace? Another thing that happened is I moved into the position from private industry. And one of the things that I noticed, unfortunately, is that the salaries in not-for-profits are not the same. Uh, so if we want to attract and retain top talent, we needed to think creatively about how we could offer compensation that wasn't necessarily monetary. So thinking about how do we make sure our workers' lives are as full as they can possibly be, how do we make sure that they feel respected is something that was very important. Also, there are a few other CMHAs around the country that are trying this as well. So it was a multiplicity of factors. How will the Newfoundland and Labrador chapter ensure that the quality of service remains consistent with the reduced work week? It's a great question, and it's something that I must say we have not had issue with as yet. We're very lucky with the team that we have. They are incredibly talented, incredibly passionate, and driven individuals. And one of the things that we've instituted to make sure that we don't see any sort of a reduction in services is that we're engaging with this in a flexible way. So, for instance, we do lots and lots of different kinds of training, mental health first aid, suicide intervention and prevention. We have bespoke offerings. And there are lots of times when people would like to see those happen on, let's say, a Friday and a Saturday or a Thursday and a Friday. So our employees have been really great about being willing to engage in those trainings and then flexing that time later in the week. So we really have taken a flexible approach, um, and that's allowed for us to maintain our level of service. 
I'm having a chat with Chandra Cavanaugh, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association for this province. Chandra, what feedback have you received from employees since the glorious announcement of the permanent adoption of the four-day work week? <laughs> I would say uh, everyone is feeling very positive. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, People need time to spend with their families, with their loved ones. People have passion projects that they want to engage with and hobbies. People need downtime simply to relax. And so what my employees are finding is that having this, you know, three-day weekend really allows them to come back to work feeling refreshed, feeling passionate, and being able to do an even better job than they could before. So the feedback, I must say, has been nothing but positive. Um, I've heard from a couple of people that it makes for busy days during the week, but that's one of the reasons why we didn't consider a reduction in pay. I know that this is something that some organizations are considering when they consider a four-day work week. Um, But the thing for me is that we are not asking our employees to do less work. We're asking them to do the same amount of work, or in our case, as a growing organization, sometimes even more work in a shorter period of time. So that means very careful time management. That means being disciplined. Uh, But then the reward for that is getting more time to spend with your friends and family. What do you believe are the broader implications of this move for the mental health sector? So what I would like to see is that there are broader implications for the mental health sector, for the not-for-profit sector, and frankly, for employers in general. So one of the things that has surprised me is since this story broke, I've already been contacted by multiple organizations saying, how did you guys do this? We really want to do this. So already there are forward-thinking employers who are looking for examples of this, who are looking for help to roll this out. And I think that, of course, there are going to be industries, of course, there are going to be employers where this kind of thing is not possible. But I encourage every employer to think creatively about ways that they can make their workers' lives better, about ways that they can give them more of a work-life balance or allow them to improve their own work-life balance. Uh, But already the feedback that I'm getting is that there are other organizations organizations about there that have just been waiting for their chance to implement this. Chandra, what advice would you give to other organizations considering a similar shift in their work schedules? I would say listen to your people. Um, it's our employees that led this. It's our employee, employees that found a way to make this work. Um, and I would encourage every employer, if you have employees who are coming to you saying this is something that we'd like to try and here is a way that we think it can work, uh, sometimes our initial impulse as employers is to say, no, 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 that's not the way that it's been done in the past. And I really encourage every employer to think creatively about how they can make this work for their people because I can tell you uh, it's changed our working environment radically. And that is Chandra Kavanaugh, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, who have officially adopted a four-day work week. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Well, five exceptional student entrepreneurs from Canada have secured their places as the country's representatives at the upcoming Global Student Entrepreneur Awards. Bronwyn Bridges is one of the finalists from this country who will compete and with some of the most accomplished student entrepreneurs from more than 50 countries around the world. She joined us earlier this week to talk about it. So what are your thoughts on making it to the top of in the finals of this global competition? Uh, super excited to be able to represent not only Newfoundland and Memorial University, but uh, Pregmaclin as a whole. So it's actually my second time being a part of this competition, and I'm really excited to be able to be back again. Yeah, and we've spoken with you in the past about Pragmaclin. Can you just remind our listeners about your company and give us an update on how it's doing? Yeah, yeah. So Pragmaclin started back in 2020. Myself and my co-founder, Gord Genge, started this after my research in the Parkinson's space and his diagnosis in 2019. And we wanted to be able to help patients in rural and remote areas who were diagnosed with Parkinson's have better access to care So back in 2020, we created a software that would be able to assess in real time the progression of a patient's disease, individual symptoms and progression as a whole, and then provide better information for clinicians or other caregivers to assess and and treat them for their disease progression as they go. Um, So we've been building the software over the past couple of years. We've gotten a lot of help and support from the provincial government and the federal government with the NRC and have grown a team of now six full-time employees working in St. John's, Newfoundland and have 
gotten some international exposure for partnerships and, and clinical work to help validate along over the last couple of years. So Bronwyn, what challenges have you faced as a student entrepreneur and how have you overcome them? Yeah, I've been trying to juggle school uh, and the entrepreneur space all at the same time. Um, I've been really supported by Memorial in allowing me to be able to work on this so much at the same time, which has been super helpful. Um, But I think the balancing act between the two has been difficult. I've been able to have a really supportive team on the Clinton side, though, that allows me to be able to step back when needed, whether it's for classes or in the summer when I was doing comprehensive exams. um, That has allowed me to be able to complete both of them. But it's been a juggling act of time and only having so many hours in a day. How would being a finalist in these global awards affect the work you're doing with Prag McLean and its future? Um, so we had a Canadian finals, um, and I think obviously as a startup, everything's every every dollar kind of counts. And we ended up getting the first prize of fifty thousand um, dollars, which was super helpful in cash contribution to accelerate our growth. But then in general, just being on a global stage, it allows you to open so many doors for connections across the world. And so being one of the finalists allows me to then present what we're doing to a whole other group of people and and possibly open up some other opportunities or other resources for funding as we continue on. We're speaking with Bronwyn Bridges of Pragmaclin on your VOCM Mornings. And Bronwyn, what advice would you give to other students who are budding entrepreneurs while still attending university? I think definitely chase your dreams and as cliche as it sounds, um, you can always do it. It's just a matter of putting in the work to make it happen. So take the vision you have, run with it, and there's always a supportive group of people, especially here in Newfoundland and Labrador, that are willing to help you get there. And is there still time to get into the Canada-wide competition? There is. The applications are still open, so make sure you go online and apply. The GSEA portal, put in your name, it never hurts to throw it into the hat, and there's a chance that you'll be able to be on the same stage or take home the same cash prize next year. And that is Bronwyn Bridges. She is one of the students who has been chosen to compete on the global stage from this province. Bronwyn Bridges was speaking with VOCM's Ben Murphy. Well, we'll have lots more to bring you here for the rest of this hour on the best of your VOCM mornings. Stay with us. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy and we lost a broadcasting giant this week. Iconic broadcaster Vince Gallant passed away at the age of 88. Gallant had a six decades long career, the majority of which was spent as one of the most recognizable voices here at VOCM. When Vince retired in 2019, VOCM's Linda Swain and Brian Medora sat down for a roundtable with the broadcasting legend. A lot of stories over the last 60-plus years. You started in 1954, I understand, in Summerside PEI. 250 booming watts of power. (laughs) And uh, and you're ending your career here at VOCM. Uh, What are some of the highlights, I guess, for you over the last 60 years? That's a lot to remember. It is. I uh, I remember sitting down. I don't know if you were there at the time, Brian. Remember at the old colony club? We sat down with the... Brian Mulroney's cabinet with Brian Mulroney, and uh, most of the cabinet were there. Yeah, and it's in the mid-'80s, 84, I think, comes to mind. Right, we were there, and it's one of those things, you know, you leave your notebooks home, and you do all this stuff and everything else, but there's one thing I do remember about that specifically. Uh, John Crosby, by the way, and Bob Wilson, who was president of the Treasury Board, I think, at the time, or finance minister, federal finance minister. Those men, both of those men, they were the brains in that cabinet, there's no question. Brian Mulroney was the figurehead and the most boring man I ever met in my life. He really was, you know. I try to ask, engage him in conversation, and maybe it's because he just didn't give a darn, you know, but, you know, who's this kid, what's he want? sort of thing, but whatever it was, uh, I, I tried to engage him. I said, you know, that's a really pressure job, being Prime Minister of Canada. So, uh, you know, what do you do for relaxation? Uh, uh, well, I have my bicycle. And, uh, <laughs> I gave up trying after that. <laughs> but I had some good conversations with Bob Wilson. Uh, John Crosby, I... I 
still have a lot of respect for. I thought man's got a sh- sharp wit, and age hasn't dulled it in the least bit. But he, he, uh, John was always good to you, you know. He'd give you his, his comments and that, and he didn't pull punches. He never did. Not with a good thing about a politician. There, there's another, uh, another guy, Ed Broadband, when he was head of the NDP. I remember this again was in Montreal years and years ago. But we were at a scrum, and I was again a new kid in the bunch. And he was there, and he, somebody asked him a question about something or other. Can't remember what it was, but I, all I remember was he talked at it, over it, under it, and around it, and all it demanded was a simple yes or no. And me, being me, and a little dumb, I guess, at the time, asked the same question. And he said, well, I answered that. Well, with all due respect, Mr. Broadbent, you didn't. All it requires is a yes or no. I finally got a yes out of him. And of course, when I asked the same question again, all the other guys, the old reporters, some of them, and there was a lot of them there that all they did was take handouts. Well, I couldn't really see that at the time, but they all turned around and looked at me, but we got the yes out of him. Well, one of the most decorated broadcasters in the history of Newfoundland and Labrador being remembered as one who willingly passed on his knowledge and savvy to up-and-comers. Vince Gallant, already a veteran by that time, moved to St. John's in 1976 to take up a position with NTV News. He later moved to CJYQ, then uh, to VOCM in 1983. He remained with us at VO until his retirement six years years ago. Jerry Phelan, who was news director, read the 745 and 1 p.m. newscasts on VOCM for decades with Vince. He speaks with VOCM's Brian Medore, who also had the pleasure of working alongside Vince Gallant. Tell me what you remember about Vince Gallant. Uh, it, it's a funny day today, you know, Brian, when, when I think about the, the anniversary of the, the Ocean Ranger, and it was a day similar today that I remember walking into the, the newsroom of the then uh, Q Radio on Duckworth Street, and uh, there was the anchor at the time, Vince Gallant, and me, not quite fresh, but uh, a young reporter uh, uh, coming into his realm as he was doing his best along with Baz and, as you know, the rest of our team and trying to tell the story of the Ocean Ranger. Uh, and before I even got the call of Vince's death today, uh, I had thought about that just this morning. It seems to come up every year. You know, Vince was more than a legend. When he retired a few years ago from VOCM, people, you know, talked about him as a legend. Well, that, w- that was putting it mildly. Uh, this guy uh, was, was one of the most caring individuals and broadcasters, human beings uh, that I have ever met. Uh, Vince and I sat in the same booth <laughs> at VOCM for over 25 years. Uh, morning and lunchtime to read that major newscast to the, you know, good morning, I'm Jerry Phelan, I'm Vince Gallant, and in the news, and off we'd go. And it was an amazing thing in that time period that Vince and I uh, grew as friends, as fathers, as broadcasters, as human beings. And here's what we had in common, and this is what I witnessed with, with Vince Gallant. We never, ever worked for our employer. We worked for our audience, uh, and that probably was the one thing that kept us, um, I guess, so committed to each other and to what we did, uh, because our approach was always we had to make sure that we served the audience in everything that we did, and it had to be correct. There was no excuse for otherwise. Vince and I always had uh, we always said that the audience might forgive us for being an hour late with a story, uh, but it would be an awful hard to win back their trust if we made an error. And that's the kind of guy Vince Gallant was in life. It's the kind of guy Vince Gallant was as a journalist and as a broadcaster. Um, And so, you know, when you apply those principles and say to yourself, uh, you know, how how does that work? Well, that's the magic. Just think of all the people he trained over the years, people uh, from me on. You know, the thing I always credit Vince with me was interviewing. I mean, I saw him interviewing like nobody else back in the day at, at Q Radio when there was a controversy on. I remember a prominent businessman who was all over the news at the time. And and, and anyway, Vince picked up the phone and said, I'm going to call him and ask him. And Vince called and the guy answers the phone and Vince says, well, I'm not going to 
fiddle around with this. Tell me if it's true or not. Are you selling Atlantic Place? <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Didn't and, and he got the story. And then, of course, we had the story. And that's the kind of guy he didn't. He wasn't one for uh, for playing with stuff except with words. Man, what a writer! This guy could could write and write, and he and he could put things in a perspective, uh, a tight writing style, uh, beautifully uh, crafted for radio. And he taught that to so many of us. And then, of course, his gift of ad-libbing. I mean, <laughs> Vince might not have a note in front of him, and he could go on for hours. And I saw him do that. Like, literally, you know, our computer would go down. <laughs> He'd be reading, and all of a sudden, there was nothing left. There was nothing in front of him. And he could just go off as if the newscast was in front of him. A part of that might have come from his television experience, you know, uh, because he had a lot of that too. But but it was it was an amazing, amazing gift. And I got to see it and, and enjoy it many times, especially during live broadcasts. And and I guess, you know, the other thing that, that I always remember about Vince is just his, his sense of humor. I mean, he could make you laugh no matter how bad a day you were having. Uh, in the old days at, at Q, we, we had these tea parties. That's what we'd call them. It'd be breakfast in the morning with uh, John Nolan, the late John Nolan, another great broadcaster, uh, and, and myself, Ron Pumphrey. Um, and, and, you know, Vince would just, like, he'd pour tea as a way to have our news meetings talk about stuff and, and like, have a little thing over his arm as if he was in a restaurant. And, uh, and, and just to break up how bad a morning it might have been with whatever the news stories were of the day, which to me, again, showed somebody's character. Uh, we always talked about Vince and I about how much we've been through. It was like going through the going through the wars, right? Because we grew uh, with our families, as, as and even though our age difference was substantial. I mean, you know, Vince was in his late eighties, and I'm in my mid sixties. Um, so there was that difference, but there was this mutual respect, and he never, ever, ever, ever wanted to be in, a man of an ego. Even even when he was winning all these awards, he'd always wherever it was, stand up and give credit to somebody else, give credit to me, give credit to uh, our newsroom and our news team. And he won the highest awards. Uh, you know, uh, He won the Murrow Awards in the U.S. For, for news anchoring. We had a joint newscast. We won that three or four times. Uh, and other awards. And it's, it's a story of achievement beyond any. And I think one of the things that uh, at the time, there, were, <laughs> there was an effort behind the scenes some years ago to try and get him the Order of Newfoundland. Of course, he, he wasn't born in Newfoundland, but you'd never know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was as as much a Newfoundlander as, as any Newfoundlander could be. Uh, he loved this place. He loved it so much, ferociously, and and uh, would defend his province anywhere and, and, and just loved it to a T. Uh, we are uh, a lot better off because Vince Gallant was in our lives and taught so many of us journalists and former journalists the craft, um, and we are worse off because he's not with us anymore. But thankfully, there are people in journalism today, like yourself, Brimador, uh, who Vince helped uh, develop and and uh, and teach, and uh, you carry on his legacy, uh, as do Linda Swain and and many others in the VOCM news team. Uh, and he would be, and is, I know, very proud of of all you guys do. And that was VOCM's Brian Medora speaking with Jerry Phelan. Now, Gallant had a storied career, as mentioned, that spanned over six decades. The body of work. It was honored with an induction into the Atlantic Journalism Hall of Fame back in 2019. Here's my conversation with Vince Gallant just after that induction. Vince Gallant, now inducted to the Atlantic Journalism Awards Hall of Fame. Congratulations, and first off, what does it mean to you to get this recognition? Actually, it was quite a rush, I'll tell you, on the weekend because it was a total surprise. Linda had Linda Swain, the news director, of course, put my name forward, but she hadn't said a word about it until everything came and it was a fait accompli and I really got a quite a surprise. It's really quite an honor because though I've had a number of awards, regional, national, international, I've even got a letter of commendation by the New York Times, a story I did way back when, when I worked in Montreal. But uh, this caps them all, all of them, because it's a recognition by my peers of a lifetime's body of work in my profession. And that, uh, that is quite an honor. It's also a very humbling experience, but quite an honor, and I've got to admit it really gave me an internal rush. And you said how you do some woodworking in your pastime. or in Yeah, your... that's a hobby. So 
Tell me a little bit more about what you plan to do there. You said you were going to build a desk? I got to build a desk and uh, make arrangements with these awards to, so I can hang and I, I can look at them in the future and realize what I used to be. So Vince, some 65 years ago, how did you end up in the business? I had a band, four-piece band. We had uh, sponsored radio shows in Charlottetown, PEI, and Summerside. They're only about 30 miles apart, you know. We were sponsored uh, sure gain animal foods, feeds, and stuff, you know. So we used to make a few bucks that way, but I happened to be in Summerside, and uh, the general manager of the station apparently had just lost an employee who'd taken off for greener pastures. Asked me if I'd like a job. Well, I thought quickly, you know, it's easier than what I was doing. I, uh, at the time, I was working for Central Dairies, Central Creameries in uh, Charlottetown, testing the butterfat content <laughs> in milk. That's exactly what I was doing. And uh, but they offered me an extra ten bucks a week, and I figured that wasn't bad back in those days, you know, 1954. I said, yeah, give it a try. Why not? And uh, I said, okay, you got, we'll have to give you an addition, see how you handle yourself. So they did, and he hired me. And that was it. Although I didn't become uh, a news person as such until I hit Montreal. And I went to work at uh, CJAD there which was the number one station at the time because I'd gone to Montreal, I made the rounds, two or three stations, and the next day I got a call from AD, which is a big station, you know. Danny Gallivan worked there, and uh, God knows how many, Don Chevrier, whom you may know of in the past, uh, he, did, he went to CTV, did a lot of Olympics and all that stuff. But uh, Paul Reed, who used to be the voice of the Bank of Canada, Royal Bank, and, and uh, people like that. But one day, I was just working swing shift, and one day they needed somebody to fill in a news shift. So they stuck me on the air, do it. Well, I did it the next day. Mac McCurdy, general manager, called me in and he said, Vince, how do you feel about going to news permanently? Okay. <laughs> and that was it from then on. I found my niche, I think at that point in time, so that was pretty much it. And that is my conversation with Vince Gallant after he was inducted into the Atlantic Journalism Hall of Fame back in 2019. Now let's get to the listener tributes, of course. Vince had such a huge impact on all his fans, all the people who were listening to him each and every morning that he was here reading the news. And, you know, for the last few days of this past week, we've been remembering the life and legacy of Vince Gallant. Now, some people felt compelled to call us and tell us their thoughts and how he impacted their life. Here's some of the calls we received. Morning, guys. Uh, this is Damien Fowler calling. I just want to express my condolences on the loss of your friend Vince Galant. Uh, as I've told uh, Mike, uh, Mike, uh, Mike Campbell and uh, Mark Critch, uh, their dad, Mike Critch, and Vince, people like that, really showed us how to tell great stories over the years. And uh, Vince was one of those guys. He just he knew how to he knew how to put a spin on a story and grab your attention. And uh, when Vince was talking, we all listened. So uh, great loss for the community and, and the province and for your station, obviously as well. So rest in peace, sir, and uh, condolences to the family. God bless. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's more than one that left a message in regarding to Vince Gallant's passing. I just want to pass along my sympathies to the station there and all the workers, everyone who uh, had time working with him. I've heard some stories all over the radio already. Uh, he certainly had a distinctive voice for radio, uh, and I think more than one could say that if they didn't know his name, they knew, his, they recognized his voice. Um, I'm sure it was a shock to all of you guys, but... Uh, and I don't know if he was ever uh, sworn in as an honorary Newfoundlander, but I'm sure uh, each one that knew him would regard him as an honorary Newfoundlander. So we just want to pass along our condolences to you guys and uh, the 
listening audience of the passing of Vince Glenn and to his family. I'm sure they're going through a difficult time, but we just want to know that they're thought of and, and prayed for, and uh, hopefully they'll uh, have some good memories to carry them through these difficult days. Thank you, and this is Cindy James calling from Dearly. Thank you. Bye-bye. Like most people, I uh, thinking about uh, Mr. Glenn there the, the past couple of days. One thing that always came to my mind, and um, I don't know if I'm the only one who remembers this or not, but how many times did you hear him announce a big lottery jackpot? And at the end, he always says, the winning ticket was sold, you guessed it, Ontario. Thank you for everything, Mr. Glenn. You were wonderful. You were a great addition to the station. In regards to Vince Glenn's uh, passing, I, I was uh, very sorry to hear that. And I met him on one occasion, and I found him to be a wonderful person. Uh, he had a lot, wonderful personality, and of course his voice was something else. And I really took to him when when I I saw him, you know. And and, and uh, all in all, uh, an exceptional man. Thank you. Yeah. Good morning, sir. Calling from right around to me. My name is Rich. Just like to pass my condolences along to the family of the great Vince uh, Gillian. I have been listening to to VOCM for a long, lot, a lot of years. And you know, Vince, I never did meet the man, but he had a very distinguished voice. I tell you, he stood out over a lot of crowd. Anyway, rest in peace, my friend, and thank you to VOCM. And I'm sure that you know all of them. Thank you, and have a good one. I'm Vince Gallant, VOCM, Local News Now. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, this past week marked a tragic anniversary in the province. In the early 80s, laid-off welder Douglas Putt was happy to supplement his income and take a two-week job on board the Ocean Ranger. The loving father set his sights on taking his family to Toronto to see his sister when the summer rolled around. Sadly, his plan to go on a family adventure, it never came to be. The lives of so many were forever altered when the Ocean Ranger was lost in the early morning hours of February 15th, 1982. Tina Putt is the daughter of Douglas Putt, and she joined us earlier this week on your VOCM. He worked with East Steel, um, worked there for years. Uh, as a child, I can remember, you know, it was, it was very cyclical, like they'd be laid off and on um, unemployment uh, quite a bit. So um, when he did get the opportunity to go out for a couple of weeks and get some extra cash, he took advantage of it um, in hopes of, um, you know, making our lives better. What are your fondest memories of Douglas as a father and his dreams for the family? Um, Dad was, uh, he was, he was, he was a really good father. He, uh, I would say, um, he was present in our lives. Like he always made time for us. Uh, Sunday was always family day. He would uh, take us for a drive, or take us skating, or, or swimming, or, or whatever, depending on what the season was. But he he did like he really put in the effort to uh, spend time with us. And I say effort, but it was effortless. Like he he truly seemed to enjoy spending time with his family. Tina, how did the loss of the Ocean Ranger and your father impact your family's life in the immediate aftermath and even, you know, over the years right up to today? Um, it, it was really hard. Well, it's, it's, it's still hard. Like, um, when you lose a loved one, it doesn't really matter why or when, but it, it, it's hard and um, just losing them in the way that we did uh, kind of made it harder because it, it just seems like it shouldn't have happened. Um, yeah, and he's just, he wasn't there for all the special moments in our lives. Like, he was there in spirit, but it would have been so nice to have him there to talk to. Again, I thank you for joining us, Tina, and I certainly apologize for the loss that you have felt for so many years. 
And looking back on that day, there was a vicious winter storm during the sinking of the Ranger. And of course, here we are today with the stormy weather hitting the region yesterday and today. Do the stormy anniversaries of the tragedy have a deeper impact on your reflections? Yeah, it's 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 very ominous knowing the storm was coming and knowing the date. Um, it 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 always seems like it's bad this time of year, um, and uh, yeah, it just it it just brings you back to to that time in life and you just kind of relive it. And um, yeah, it's very sad. Tina, the disaster did lead to changes in safety regulations for offshore drilling. How do you feel about the progress that's been made in the industry, safety-wise, since then? Um, yeah, I, well, obviously that's kind of the legacy of the Ocean Rangers. It, it did bring about a, a number of uh, important changes to safety regulations, and um, in that aspect, hopefully, um, there the deaths of the eighty-four men. Um, will serve to um, to help other families and, and to ensure that they don't have to go through the same thing um, with safety. I mean, we we can't let down our guard. We have to be ever vigilant. Uh, engineering and um, the harsh environment that our people work in is ever-changing. Climate's changing, and uh, we just can't drop the ball. We have to remember, and today kind of serves as, as a reminder of what can happen if we if we don't if we don't remember and if we don't remain vigilant and we don't uh, ensure we do everything we can to keep our people safe. And you have regularly participated in the annual Ocean Ranger Memorial Service and it's a difficult task for anyone who has lost a loved one. Why has this been important for you to engage in over the years? Um, first, I'd like to say um, a huge thank you to um, to the students and, and the teachers that have put off this wonderful memorial every year um it's important just to remember and 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 to like i said it's it's just a reminder for everyone that uh we the loss is huge and we 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 can't go through that again and of course due to the weather that event has been moved to monday at the basilica will you be there this year tina Unfortunately, I won't. I actually made plans around the, um, like, I do have something else, another engagement on Monday that I have to attend, and I had scheduled it hoping that I would be able to attend today, but, um, I mean, with logistics and the storm, um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I won't be able to meet it this year, but I'll certainly be there again next year, if, if, if at all possible. Yes, and you've certainly been a vocal participant in past years, for sure. You will be missed at the ceremony this year. Tina, how will you be spending today? How will you be reflecting on the disaster that changed so many lives for people in this province? Um, I'm, well, with the storm, I'm probably just going to spend the day home. And, um, yeah, like Dad, um, most days I try to live in the present, but today um, Dad will be forefront in my mind, and I'll just be thinking about him and all the great things that he did with us and uh, the great person that he was. And yeah, that'll be my focus. And that is Tina Putt. She joined us earlier this week. She lost her father in the Ocean Ranger disaster. And now there's always a memorial service hosted by Gonzaga High School students and staff uh, on the day of the anniversary. But of course, due to the poor weather we've seen this week, it was postponed, taking place tomorrow, February the 19th. And the service will still take place at the Basilica at 1 p.m. Ben. In other news, the province's largest union is upset with government's intention to go with the P3 model for the extension of divided lanes on the Trans-Canada Highway. The intended move by government to go with that model means provincial road crews will not be involved in the work. NAEP represents those crews. VOCM's Noah Shepard speaks with NAEP President Jerry Earl. We have a major problem with this from right off from out was announced. Ironically, Myself and officials from NAEP at a meeting with this minister and several of his officials last week to bring forward concerns we had just about uh, human resources and equipment and a number of other things. Uh, this was not disclosed in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and then to have this announced when we're going through a significant snowstorm just shows the absolute lack of respect that this government and this minister has for workers that's out there today as we speak. So we have a major problem with it. We have a major with the with the aspect that they're actually even saying that the snow clearing operations, if it was today, we would have a private contractor doing the section of work. 
And I tell you, it is not something that our members are prepared to stand for. It is something that the union is not prepared to stand for. What is the negative impact for your members of government using P3s? Well, this would be a section of highway that's right now that is done by the women and men uh, that go out on days like this in the store. So they would clear that. So actually what I'm understanding, and, and again, the minister hasn't sat down and talked to us or talked to the frontline workers. What I'm understanding, what he said in comments, this would now be replaced. Uh, number one, I'll remind him we have a collective agreement in place. And if this is the absolute disregard he has for his workers, this collective agreement, that's a major issue. On P3s alone. But Newfoundlanders and Labradorians got to understand it is going to put an additional cost. And guess who's going to pay for that? It's us right here in Newfoundland, Labrador. These P3 models have failed in other parts of the country. Why are we allowing our government to repeat these failures here at a cost to us and a financial cost? Let's look at the long-term care facilities, the problems that we've had there in a P3. So I can only imagine the highway. Noah, in other parts of the country, in Ontario, uh, we've seen the increased cost of this model. And we hear from the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternative talks about a similar project in Nova, Nova Scotia that actually costs the people in Nova Scotia close to a quarter of a million dollars more. Uh, and all this P3 does, it kicks the financial costs down the road. So this government can make themselves look good by laying some asphalt uh, and partly scoring some political brownie points. Uh, and maybe there's an election upcoming, and maybe that's what they're talking about it. But we are going to pay for this in an unknown cost for 25 or 30 years or more. So it's Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that's going to ultimately pay. Our members obviously have their work impacted, but I can tell you it's not something that we're going to sit idly by and not address. So what's the next steps for the union uh, in talks with government about this? Well, right off the bat, like I said, ironically, we sat in the minister's own boardroom a week ago to raise issues around readiness for water bombers, the shortage of resources in maintenance operation service that we already have. It is incumbent on him and his department to make sure we have proper resources and equipment, which they have failed to do, by the way. Uh, already now, we have written the minister uh, a very blunt letter requesting a meeting to talk about this very particular issue. Uh, depends on what comes out out of that meeting what our next steps will be, because I assure you, uh, if this is not resolved satisfactory, there will absolutely be next steps from our membership and from this union. And that is Nate President Jerry Earl speaking with VOCM's Noah Shepard. And just like that, our time is up here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Hope you enjoyed the program. And again, our thoughts and condolences go out to uh, Dennis Parker, his entire family, and same thing with Vince Gallant and his family both will truly be missed. You got that right. It was more of a, a solemn week here at your VOCM because of that loss. But, Ben, we won't be back in business tomorrow morning. We'll be back on on Tuesday morning. 5.30 to 9 a.m. We'll chat then. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday.